Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's Teleforum conference call. This afternoon's topic is titled Book Review, Marijuana Federalism, Uncle Sam and Mary Jane. My name is Greg Walsh, and I am Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Professor Jonathan H. Adler, the Johann Verhey Memorial Professor of Law and Director at the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at Case Western Reserve University, and Mr. Paul J. Larkin, Jr., a Senior Legal Research Fellow at the Mee Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. After our speakers give their opening remarks, we will go to audience Q&A. Thank you all for sharing with us today. Professor Adler, the floor is yours. Well, great. Well, thank you. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I appreciate uh, the FedSoc agreeing to do a forum on uh, this book and appreciate uh, Paul for his uh, time uh, in 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 looking at the book and and providing commentary, what I want to do uh, relatively briefly is uh, say a little bit about why uh, we did the book. Uh, it is an edited volume, uh, has a range of contributors, uh, quite a few of whom will be familiar uh, to a FedSoc audience, uh, people like Will Baud and Ernie Young, uh, as well as some other folks. Um, I want to explain why we did the book, why we think it's important to view marijuana through the lens of federalism and say a little bit why, how I certainly my view is, is that thinking about marijuana uh, as a question to be handled through the system of federalism actually solves many of the policy conundrums that we are currently dealing with. So just in terms of some background, um, you know, 25 years ago, uh, marijuana was illegal everywhere in the United States, not only under federal law, but under uh, state law. Uh, beginning in the 1990s, uh, some states began to allow the cultivation, possession, and use of cannabis for medicinal purposes. Um, uh, and as I think folks on this call will know, uh, that led to some litigation, uh, including Ultimately, the case of Gonzalez versus Raich, where the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the federal prohibition on um, the possession, use, distribution, and sale of, of marijuana, and included in that the conclusion that the federal government could uh, prohibit uh, the possession of marijuana, uh, even for medicinal purposes and even absent any sort of uh, commercial nexus. Uh, so states began allowing marijuana use, uh, the federal prohibition remained. Uh, Beginning in 2012, uh, states not only were allowing marijuana for medicinal purposes, uh, but began to allow marijuana for recreational purposes. So in 2012, Colorado and Washington state uh, both passed referenda uh, allowing marijuana for recreational use. And over the following years, um, numerous other states uh, followed. Today, uh, 11 states and the District of Columbia allow marijuana for recreational use. Um, Another, uh, I believe it is 16 states, have decriminalized low-level possession of marijuana. Uh, Most recently, Virginia, uh, this past month, 
close to uh, two dozen states allow medicinal use broadly um, uh, for marijuana, and then there are many more states that allow uh, more limited medicinal use of certain uh, products containing T that have low THC contact content or that are um, uh, marijuana derivatives. Um, over the last two decades, there are only three states that have done next to nothing in terms of reforming or changing their marijuana laws in some way. Um, but you know, in a majority of states, uh, marijuana use and possession is is allowed for at least some purposes, at least medicinal, if not uh, for recreational uh, as well. Now, despite all this, marijuana remains illegal under federal law. As a practical matter, uh, this does not mean that the average person who is a user of marijuana for personal use, for medicinal or recreational purposes, has much to worry about in terms of prosecution. And that's largely because the, the federal government doesn't have the law enforcement resources to enforce uh, that prohibition uh, at the local level. Uh, it doesn't have the boots on the ground. It doesn't have the means of doing that. Further, um, the Justice Department uh, has made clear that that uh, traditional federal law enforcement priorities tend to mean focusing on uh, things like interstate trafficking, distribution to children and the like, and not um, uh, small scale use and possession. Um, there have been changes in terms of how kind of official that policy is. There were some memos during the Obama administration uh, that were rescinded by the Trump administration, uh, but Bill Barr has noted um, that uh, he does not think it makes a lot of sense for the federal government to try and upset the settled expectations that exist in uh, jurisdictions where marijuana use uh, is allowed and that it doesn't think it's really practical for the federal government to focus its limited law enforcement resources on individual uh, possession. All that said, the fact that it is, marijuana is still illegal under federal law does create a sort of shadow or overhang that affects a wide range of other sorts of activities. Uh, it creates um, uh, problems for providing financial services to marijuana businesses or marijuana-related businesses that are legal under state law. And we have a chapter in the book by Julie Hill of Alabama that goes into that. Basically, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, banks can't certify that they are not providing financial services to illegal activity if they are, for example, processing credit card transactions to uh, businesses that are selling marijuana. So that creates a problem. It creates a problem for lawyers because traditionally understood, the rules of professional responsibility mean we're not allowed to counsel our clients on the prospective violation of law, right? A client comes to you saying, I violated the law. I think I might be in trouble. You can help that client, but you can't tell a client, okay, here's how the things you can do that will facilitate ongoing law breaking. So if you want to create an LLC for a cannabis dispensary, under traditional understandings of professional responsibility, that's a problem. And States have struggled in how to deal with that, and we have a chapter by my colleague, Andre Robertson, that deals with that. Under federal tax law, a business that's legal under state law can't deduct the same sorts of business expenses for purposes of federal taxes uh, that other businesses can because of marijuana's status. Uh, there are potential implications under RICO. Um, uh, the, the, the 
violation of various federal drug laws or can be RICO predicate offenses and can create at least the potential of civil RICO liability. Uh, it creates implications for people that want to purchase guns. Uh, if you have a medical marijuana card, um, that's a, a reason not to be allowed to purchase a gun uh, and a, create a, will create a flag on, on a background check. So um, the fact of federal prohibition, even if it is not enforced against individuals as opposed to you know, those engaged in trafficking and the like, um, does create disruptions, does create what I would argue are some anomalies that make marijuana uh, activities um, different than other activities that are allowed under state law and, and I think create some problems. I mean, among other things, uh, if we're worried about things like trafficking, if we're worried about things like organized crime, uh, saying to marijuana dispensaries that they have to be cash-only businesses because they can't get financial services and and reducing the likelihood, at least in some jurisdictions, that ethical lawyers will want to help them uh, is not a way of encouraging that these businesses uh, be conducted in a more a responsible manner. So I think there's some problems there that need to be addressed. Stepping back in terms of why I think you know we want to allow states to experiment as they are, um, I think that that the reasons why a compound republic in which states are responsible for the bread and butter of criminal law and and exercise their police power to decide what sorts of things should or should not be allowed consistent with public safety and welfare. I think allowing states to make choices about marijuana fits into that in part because across our country, people have very different views about uh, what sorts of things uh, should be uh, should be legal uh, in, in a large heterogeneous republic in which different groups of people have different priorities and preferences with regard to how the law should treat marijuana. Uh, setting a single national policy increases the likelihood that people live under laws that they don't support and think are, are valid. Um, while I might personally be more inclined towards marijuana legalization than Paul is, and I don't, I don't know, but, but, I, but I might be, I, I still think that's a question that should be dealt with at the state level because not everybody feels that way. Uh, as Alexis de Tocqueville pointed out, in a large centralized nation, the lawgiver is bound to give laws a uniform character, which is, does not fit the diversity of places and moors. Uh, and this was a point that the state of Alabama actually made in, in the amicus brief it filed in the Gonzalez versus Raich case, where Alabama pointed out that in Alabama, at the time, had the nation's most severe criminal penalties for possession and distribution of marijuana. Uh, but Alabama said, look, if California wants to have a different policy, that's fine. Just make sure we can do ours. And, and I think that's a good, uh, a good practical uh, view. Secondly, um, you know, the reality is, is that the federal government can't effectively impose marijuana prohibition. It can't commandeer the states. It can't make the states enforce federal law. And we have some chapters in the book that, that, that go into that and why under cases like New York and Prince and Murphy, that is the case. But as I already noted, as a practical matter, uh, the federal government's not going to devote the resources on the ground. Um, a, a third point that I think is just important and uh, and and I, I think Paul will, will agree with this, is that we spend too much time talking about marijuana as legalized, don't legalize. Differences on the margin in, in what our laws and policies are in terms of how a substance like marijuana are treated matter. And 
the effects of those differences on the margin are not always going to be self-evident before the fact. Uh, we're learning a lot about what happens when you legalize or decriminalize marijuana, and we will continue to learn more in the years ahead. And the contours and specifics of a given legal regime uh, uh, matter. It turns out, and there's a chapter in the book that goes over what empirical evidence we have thus far, and, and it is, I, I emphasize thus far, it turns out that the people that thought marijuana legalization would be a disaster seem to have overstated the case. And the people that thought marijuana would create nirvana and it would eliminate the opioid crisis and, and the like were also overstating the case. But it may turn out that over time that that, that changes. And it, we will be able to figure out that what Colorado did versus what Michigan did versus what Washington did, that some of those differences matter in terms of the safety implications, the public health implications, and so on. And allowing federalism to serve as that discovery mechanism and process, I think, is really, uh, really important. Um, so lastly, just in terms of what we should do, because I think I'm at the time that I said I was going to speak for, I think we have a model for how we should think about marijuana, and that is we should treat it like alcohol after prohibition, uh, where we should say, look, state, this is precisely the sort of question that states generally get to decide and should be allowed to decide. And that doesn't mean the federal government does nothing. It means the federal government plays its traditional proper role of regulating inter in truly interstate commerce in a way that protects states against spillovers from other states. So when we ended alcohol prohibition, it remained a federal crime to distribute possess, or possess with intent to distribute alcohol in states in violation of applicable state law. So if someone in North Carolina was preparing to ship alcohol into South Carolina in ways that would violate South Carolina law, that's not only a South Carolina legal violation, that's a federal legal violation. And if you think like I do, the federal government has a comparative advantage in dealing with things like trafficking and dealing with those sorts of interstate effects, I think uh, clarifying that that is what's illegal under federal law uh, would uh, go a long way towards dealing with some of the problems I identified, preserve our federalist structure, uh, and allow us to adopt marijuana policies that in the long run uh, will be consistent with, with what people want and with uh, maximizing public welfare. I will stop there, and I, I look forward to Paul's remarks. Thank you. Well, this is Paul Larkin. Um, I work at the uh, Heritage Foundation, but I'm speaking today on my own behalf, not on behalf of Heritage. Uh, I want to thank the Federalist Society for giving me the opportunity to participate. I want to thank Professor Adler for editing such a terrific book. It is no doubt an extremely valuable contribution to the literature discussing each of the two topics conjoined in its title, marijuana and federalism. Why do I say that? Well, at one time, state and federal law were uniform and clear. Both treated marijuana as contraband. As Professor Adler pointed out, however, the current legal status of marijuana or cannabis is anything but settled and clear. The federal government still outlaws marijuana. But since 1996, more than 30 states have decided to permit but regulate the sale and use of marijuana for medical and recreational purposes. Well, where does that leave us? Three decades ago, the status of marijuana was clear to everyone, but to some people, it was misguided. Today, the status of cannabis is anything but clear to anyone, and to some people, it is still misguided, but for different reasons and to different people. Professor Adler's book tries to make sense of this uh, conundrum that we now have. He doesn't take the quixotic task of trying to persuade the Supreme Court to reconsider its decisions expanding Congress's Commerce Clause power. 
what it does instead is try to persuade Congress to cowboy up and finally address this problem because we have an ongoing antagonistic state of affairs between the federal and state governments. And the book, therefore, not only is excellent in terms of its content, but also in its approach. Marijuana Federalism focuses on the implications for each topic of the growth of the two very conflicting regimes. It has very interesting, very valuable essays by a host of different people in this regard, each of which tries to address this issue from the perspective of federalism, and each of which argues that because federalism is built into our Constitution's DNA, when we reconsider this issue, as Congress must, we ought to use federalism as the go-by. With 50 different states, we might come up with 50 different approaches, and that's true. And each of those different approaches will help educate us as to what is the best overall approach. In that regard, I tend to differ, and here's why. Gaul may have been divided into three parts, but marijuana needs only two, medical use and recreational use. And unfortunately, we have conflated those two uses in most of the debate concerning how to reconsider what we have in the current state of affairs as to the regulation of marijuana. The problem, ironically, originates not in 1996 when California adopted the first medical marijuana uh, program, and not in 1970 when Congress adopted the Controlled Substances Act of that year. The problem began in 1938. The year before, in 37, Congress had effectively outlawed marijuana nationwide in the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. The following year, in 38, Congress passed the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The mistake in the in 38 was in not then giving the commissioner of food and drugs the authority to decide whether marijuana, which clearly has the same effects uh, as you know other drugs, should decide whether that was safe and then later effective. Congress repeated the same mistake in 1970 when it didn't leave the decision as to the medical use of marijuana to the commissioner of food and drugs, and as a result, uh, when California finally decided to make this a medical uh, justification for the use of marijuana. Congress didn't step in and say, no, we have decided this and we have kept through this program for 80 plus years. Over that period, since 1938, we have divided medical treatment between the federal and state governments as follows. The states license physicians and use administrative and tort law to govern their practice. But the federal government is responsible for deciding what is a drug and what drugs are safe and effective. Medical marijuana programs run headlong into that consensus that we have had for 80 plus years and that no one seriously argues we should reject now. What's happened, however, is that we have used medical marijuana programs as a sham. They were designed intentionally by their proponents to allow people to get used to the idea that marijuana should be used and to use as a justification getting it for medical treatments. But if you look at the original California law, it was really a recreational use statute. Yes, it was sold to the public on the ground that marijuana could be used to treat the cachexia from AIDS or cancer or some of the spasticity from various neuromuscular diseases. 
But the last phrase in the provision said that it can also be used for anything for which a physician finds it helpful, which means if you're having a blue day. As a practical matter, all it takes to get a miracle marijuana card in California is $40 and 10 minutes. This has been a sham, and it continues to operate today, and it has been such in every other program. My biggest criticism of uh, marijuana federalism, therefore, is that none of the contributors discusses the fundamental issue of how we decide precisely what judgments should be left to the states rather than the federal government. For 80 years, we have left all judgments dealing with drugs to the federal government in the hands of the commissioner of food and drugs. The framers made the judgment that we should leave to the federal government decisions dealing with interstate issues or international issues. We continue that today, but today we also make certain judgments that the federal government is more qualified to handle certain matters than the states. We decided to send a man to the moon and bring him home safely. We left that action in the hands of the federal government, not the states. Today, we make these types of judgments uh, because science is far more advanced than it was in the 18th century, because physicians, biochemists, and epidemiologists know more than the average person about drugs, medical treatment, and the like, because we are comfortable allowing experts to make decisions that implicate their expertise, and because only the federal government has the ability to harness the assets and people to decide what drugs are safe nationwide. We should do the same thing with respect to marijuana. Leave to the federal government the authority to decide whether it is a drug and safe and effective. If we want to legalize recreational use marijuana, address that issue head on and argue the pros and cons and argue all of the pros and cons. Remember, we're talking about a drug that isn't going to save lives, but a drug that can take them. If you legalize recreational use marijuana, you're going to have an increase in the number of people who toke up, go one toke over the line, and then get behind the wheel of a motor vehicle. We've already seen that happen in places like Colorado. The number of people who have been involved in fatality, uh, fatal crashes uh, has increased dramatically if they've been using marijuana. Now, I can't say the marijuana caused it, of course, but no place else do we allow this sort of correlation to go unexamined, and yet we're doing it now. So my bottom line is this. Marijuana federalism appears, excuse me, appears at a very opportune point. The new state marijuana regulatory programs from Maine to Hawaii are not going to disappear anytime soon. The book encourages Congress to address the chaotic state of the law today, and Congress needs to. But when Congress does, I think it needs to look at this program uh, by dividing the issue into two, medical use versus recreational use. The medical use programs have been lying to people ever since 1996. If you want to uh, authorize it for recreational use, then make that argument, but be willing to address the consequences of authorizing its recreational use. And if that's what the states want to do, and if that's what Congress lets them do, 
And if that's what the people across the nation want to do, then at least be honest about what they're doing and not try to euchre us into thinking that they're doing this in order to cure disease. They're not. With that, let me turn it back to Professor Adler. Alrighty. Um, uh, thanks. I appreciate those comments. Uh, and I think uh, there's a lot there. Um, I want to um, just make a couple few uh, or a few comments um, and perhaps try and highlight some, some places where we disagree um, uh, because I think that might be more interesting for uh, folks on the call. Uh, I certainly, um, you know, appreciate the concern about whether or not we treat marijuana as a drug, but I think we want to step back and remember that if we're talking about a, a, a natural substance, um, generally the way the federal drug regime uh, treats substances, you know, ginseng, ginkgo, balboa, or whatever, you know, some, some other herb or, or something that might be used uh, and recommended by a doctor, is that whether or not it's regulated by the FDA uh, is a function of how it's marketed. It's a function of how it is uh, uh, presented and described by the producer, um, not a function of just does the substance exist. Uh, so if I want to make specific medical claims about a, a substance, then I need FDA approval. Um, but if I want to um, package an herb or some, you know, a derivative of some plant that I grow uh, and uh, sell it in the hope that there are people that on their own will have determined that it might help them medically or doctors will recommend it, I don't have to go through the FDA process. And so there's no reason, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be any reason why marijuana in a lot of contexts wouldn't be uh, able to be treated that way and why it shouldn't be treated that way uh, and why federal law should not allow it to be treated that way. That is to say, if, if I'm a, a drug company or somebody else, and I want to uh, develop a marijuana-derived product, and I want to claim that it will treat a particular disease, well, then I'm subject to that regulatory regime. If I don't, then it's not clear why I should uh, have to be subject to uh, that regime. Secondly, I think it is important to recognize that until very recently, um, medical research on marijuana in the United States was, was basically precluded. So uh, I'm open to the, the argument and to the idea that that the effects of marijuana, the medical benefits of marijuana are, are oversold, that many of the things that people claim marijuana does, it might not in fact do. Um, that, that may be, be the case. The reality is, is until relatively recently, you could not uh, use marijuana in clinically controlled studies in the United States. So we're way behind the curve in understanding what marijuana's met, true medical uses are um, or could be. My understanding is is that for things like uh, dealing with the consequences of chemotherapy and maintaining appetite and the like, the evidence appears to be fairly strong. Uh, for some of the other claims about marijuana, uh, I think the jury uh, is still out. But again, I don't think we need to sub to subject marijuana to the drug approval process or something. Uh, we merely need to not have the federal government be in the way of people wanting to uh, conduct uh, that research, and I think uh, they they should be allowed to. Uh, in terms of whether or not you know California um, is uh, when it was purely uh, solely a medical marijuana state um, was doing things properly or improperly, you know I, I think that that too is something that 
I think is worth worth debating and discussing. I think that you know, as with any other significant change uh, in criminal law or what sorts of activities are allowed or not allowed, and moving an industry from a black market illegal industry to a regulated industry for certain purposes or, or all purposes, as as we've seen happening, I think that the devil is often in the details and that whether or not um, a, a purely medical regime for a substance that uh, does not have FDA approved uses um, is stable, uh, produces the, the results that we like or don't like. Well, you know, I, I think that's a question that, that is an empirical one. And um, I think that uh, allowing states to try different things will allow us to figure out, okay, how easy or difficult uh, should marijuana be to get, or, or I guess more precisely, what are the practical consequences of making marijuana more easy or more difficult to get? What are the consequences for uh, youth access, which I think is a very serious concern? Um, and, and we'll learn things. And to give one example, you know, uh, last year uh, before uh, coronavirus, one of the things the CDC was very concerned about was vaping. And one of the things they were particularly concerned about was something they called E-Valley. Um, it's, um, I'm going to forget what it's the acronym for, but it was a, a set of lung impairments that, that were, appear to be associated with certain types of vaping. Uh, and what eventually became clear, and unfortunately it took the CDC a while to acknowledge this, is that virtually all of these cases, if not all, uh, were the result of people using bootleg THC vaping fluids in what are in open canister systems, so not not jewels or things that you buy where they're self-contained electronic cigarette, but systems where someone buys a a vaping pen that they then decide what sort of fluid to put in it. And uh, the cases were almost all concentrated in states in which uh, marijuana is illegal. So um, now, does that mean? Marijuana should be legal, not necessarily, but uh, we learned that um, uh, one effect of different legal regimes is that uh, the demand for marijuana is filled in ways that appear to be uh, more dangerous and produced a significant number of severe lung ailments and in some cases death. And, and that's something that apparently wasn't happening in states that were allowing more controlled access. And so we would want to balance that against if you allow adults to, to purchase marijuana, does that mean that more teens are accessing marijuana and does that affect things like impaired driving? And, and I think those are empirical questions and I think we want a federalist system where we can um, allow those things to be sorted out. Paul, back to you if, if you want to add some more comments. Yeah, let me just add one. I mean, I think the argument that marijuana is a natural substance and therefore uh, isn't something we should be concerned about regulating. Well, you know, Botulism is a natural substance, too, uh, and it's deadly. Um, the mere fact that something is natural doesn't mean it's safe. Uh, we have decided that uh, we are going to leave all matters dealing with drugs to the Food uh, and Drug uh, Commission, excuse me, the Food and Drug Agency. And THC uh, is hardly one of the, the drugs we would want to take out of that rule. THC is both addictive and impairing. What other addictive and impairing drugs do we decide, well, because they give us a euphoric feeling, we're not going to uh, regulate by uh, federal law? There are none. 
So the argument that it's that marijuana is a natural substance and therefore doesn't have to be regulated by federal law just doesn't hold water because we don't treat anything else that way. Besides, uh, there is no FDA approved drug that is smoked. Why? There is no uniformity in the number of inhalations, the depth of inhalation, or the length of inhalation. Aside from that, you're going to have all sorts of toxins uh, that you wind up with in homegrown marijuana. Now, we have, we, and we know that mar- the cannabis plant has cannabinoids, the biologically active ingredients that can have valuable effects. And I agree completely with Professor Adler that we ought to do more research. And if it's difficult to do so under the current regime that is the statute or regs, then we need to change them. Because there's no good argument why we shouldn't be researching the potential therapeutic uses of cannabis to deal with various types of ailments. But the way modern medicine is practiced is we don't allow people to grow something in their backyard and then use it. We don't allow people to grow opium in their backyard simply because we know that morphine is uh, one of the premier painkillers in this world. No, we have decided for 80 plus years now that we are going to trust the federal government to make these decisions and the, uh, the Food and Drug Agency in particular to make these decisions. And there's no good argument why all of a sudden now we should exempt cannabis from this. Now, maybe all the arguments that the professor is making as to the value of federalism come into play in connection with the recreational use of marijuana. But if we're going to go that route, then we at least have to be honest about the divide between medical and recreational use. And why is that important? Well, in part, because for now 24 years, people have been lying about the value of marijuana as a drug. And if that has been the way it's been sold, then people, I think, are entitled to look critically at the arguments in favor of its use recreationally. After all, someone who lies to you about point A is probably not going to be completely open and honest about every other point. Now, I'm not remotely, I'm not remotely saying that's what the book is is doing. I'm talking about the people who sold us in California and elsewhere the miracle marijuana programs. The book doesn't get my criticism. Professor Adler doesn't get my criticism, not at all. But I'm saying if we're going to look at this matter, we ought to recognize that we've been sold a bill of goods for a long time. The fact that it's a so-called natural substance is not a, a good argument for taking it out of the regulatory regime we have adopted for 80 plus years. Perfect. Let's go to audience questions. We'll now go to the first question. Caller from area code 415, you're on the line. This is Bob Sadik. I have a a question for Jonathan and a question for Paul, if I may. Uh, Jonathan, you had mentioned, uh, observed how the federal government doesn't have the police power to enforce drug laws. And of course, that's true now. It was true during Prohibition, same issue. However, I think the other side of the coin is they do have tools to... uh, 
commandeer, if you will, local police power, equitable sharing. And my question is, is that still around or also through grants that have conditions, grants from the feds to the states that say you get this money if you do certain things that we support. Uh, uh, So the Fed does have powers to indirectly enforce federal law, even though they're quite weak. And my question, my comment to Paul is, Paul, a lot of your support for your position is you start with as a given. We had decided a while ago uh, to create the FDA with the powers that they have. And you start with the premise. Therefore, that is the law of the land. That same could be said about the uh, the constitutional amendment, which created prohibition after that amendment was passed, that became the law of the land. But of course, in, in hindsight, that was a terrible law. So I, I don't really buy into the we have decided concept in support of the FDA. We haven't decided it is the law of the land, but it's far from decided. Thank you. Alrighty, I appreciate um, the question. So let me say a couple of things. And I wanted to make one quick comment on, on Paul's last comment um, as well. Um, on the latter first, I actually do think there are natural substances that, that are intoxicating, that do have potential negative effects, that are lawful for sale in the United States, um, and, and provided you don't make a drug claim, uh, you don't actually need FDA approval. Kava is an example of that. Uh, it's an intoxicant uh, in high doses. It can cause liver damage. Um, uh, some people believe it has medicinal purposes. I have no idea if that's correct or not. Um, uh, valerian root, another example. Uh, some people believe it is as effective as um, various prescription dr- uh, sleep aids. Um, there are other um, nutritional supplements that, that their advocates at least claim can produce effects similar to um, uh, certain mood stabilizers. And so long as they don't make dr- what the FDA considers to be drug claims, they don't have to go through that process. It doesn't seem to me why marijuana should be treated any differently than that. Um, in terms of the question about um, what the federal government can do, let me make two quick points. One, just in terms of the magnitude, it's worth understanding that the first two states to legalize marijuana officially for recreational use, because I take Paul's point that um, states that, that initially legalized for medicinal use did not police that boundary very uh, aggressively. But Colorado and Washington State together have four times as many law enforcement officers as the Drug Enforcement Administration has globally, right? Because the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration not only does some stuff uh, domestically, but does aid in some international uh, drug trafficking efforts. So those two states by themselves, four times as many law enforcement officers uh, as the DEA does. And obviously, Colorado and Washington State are are concerned with a, a wide range of law enforcement that does not relate to drugs. So when we talk about the federal government not having the ability, it's, I think it's important to understand just how vast the magnitude difference is in terms of state and local capabilities versus federal. Uh, in terms of the federal government's tools, it is true that under current doctrine, um, the federal government can place conditions on the receipt of federal spending. And there is certain litigation, there is uh, certainly litigation related to that going on right now as it relates to immigration enforcement. I think it's uh, important to recognize um, that under current law, what some of the limitations are that would uh, make it hard to use that. Uh, First is uh, under decisions like um, uh, South Dakota versus Dole and NFIB versus Sibelius, um, it's not clear that Congress can attach conditions to pre-existing sources of funding. 
or at least it, there, there are questions about its ability to do that. That is to say, uh, sources of funding that Congress has been giving states for a long period of time, um, insofar as states rely upon that funding, it's not clear that Congress can use that reliance as a basis for imposing new conditions. Secondly, um, the only money that Congress can really attach conditions to under these cases is money that actually relates to Congress's concerns. So Congress could attach conditions to money related to law enforcement, probably perhaps related to drug treatment programs and the like, um, but would have to be somewhat limited in terms of what uh, sources of money it wants to attach conditions to and uh, what money it doesn't. Um, Third point here is to note, I keep saying Congress, and I keep saying that for a reason, because uh, as I think these cases make clear, the conditions have to come from Congress. Uh, They're not something that agencies can simply try and um, retrofit to pre-existing sources of funding. So those are the things that, that... that limitations on what Congress could do there. I would note Congress has actually placed limits on funding, uh, but not on funding the states. Um, Congress has been uh, passing, uh, repeatedly uh, been passing appropriations riders that actually prevent uh, the federal government from um, uh, enforcing federal drug laws in a way that gets in the way of or interferes with uh, the operation of state licensed um, medical marijuana dispensaries. And so insofar as Congress has expressed a desire one way or the other, they've said, don't use money to get in the way here. I think that's a, a you know, that's, that's like using, to me, that's like using duct tape to, to, to repair your, your car fender, right? If Congress doesn't want the federal government to get in the way of, of what states are, some states are doing, I don't think it should be doing, using the appropriations power to do that. I think it should actually be modifying federal law. Uh, the practice of, of Congress saying federal law is X, uh, but we're not going to give you money to to do X, which Congress unfortunately does in a lot of contexts, I think is corrosive of the rule of law. I think it is irresponsible uh, if uh, a majority of, of, of folks in the House uh, believe that uh, states should be allowed to experiment. They should actually do the hard work of, of changing the underlying statutes. Paul, over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, let me just say THC clearly would qualify as a drug under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And the question, therefore, is should we create an exception for THC because of the euphoric effect it has? Well, the problem is that puts the burden on the people who want the exception. And we don't create exceptions for a variety of other substances that also create the same sort of euphoric effect. We don't create one for heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, or a bunch of other things. Um, And we don't create exceptions for other drugs that have potentially hazardous effects. We don't permit companies to distribute Laetril, Vioxx, or DES that the FDA has banned. And the argument is, therefore, why uh, is marijuana or cannabis treated differently? I don't think there are persuasive cases been made that we should treat this drug differently simply because it has an effect of euphoria that can help people deal with diseases. Well, well, so does Budweiser and so does uh, wild turkey. Uh, if it weren't for the fact that there are statutory exemptions for alcohol, those would have to be treated as drugs. But we've decided that we're going to treat uh, alcohol and uh, in all its various forms uh, as being subject to different sets of laws. 
but we don't do so by saying that we're going to let the states decide these are different medical treatments. No one thinks of Budweiser or bourbon as a medical treatment. We should at least be honest about it, because if we're going to engage in this debate and not be honest about what we're doing, then we're not only disserving the public, we're likely going to mislead some people, and that's harmful. And that's why I think we need to be honest about what we're doing. Let's now go to the next caller, area code 434, you're on the line. Hi, uh, my name is Barbara Haskins. Thank you very much for a very thoughtful and nuanced conversation. And forgive me if my question is, is so much of a tangent that you, you don't want to take it, but I'm thinking about all the money that um, is accumulating in Colorado and Washington that can't be put in a bank. And like what? What is going on with all that money? Do people use wheelbarrows to pay their taxes? I mean, what's happening with the money? And isn't anybody concerned about that? Yeah, so I, I think that's a good question. And, you know, I, um, although I edited the book, um, Julie Anderson Hill uh, at University of Alabama did the, the chapter on um, uh, banking and financial services. And, and uh, her chapter is based on a, a, a longer law review article that she published in the Case Western Reserve Law Review. So, so in some respects, I, I want to defer to her. Um, you know, it is a problem and it is a concern. Um, you know, if, if one believes that the combination of an intoxicating substance and organized crime is a particularly noxious combination and that we think that um, those that market and sell uh, a product that is potentially addictive or that is potentially intoxicating um, need to be, you know, monitored in a way that, that, to ensure that they're they're operating in a responsible way, then laws that have the effect of pushing that industry kind of to the legal margins into almost a gray market, I, I worry me a lot. Um, and 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 there has been concern that um, making marijuana businesses to be de facto cash only businesses uh, increases their vulnerability to crime. Um, uh, you know, make them more enticing targets for violent crime, um, does perhaps push them towards trying to find other uh, enterprises that may provide certain sorts of services for them if they have a harder time going through banks. Uh, and, and, and I think that's, that, that's a problem because it creates all the wrong uh, incentives. Um, you know, some uh, businesses have, have, have found some ways to try and get around this um, uh, to varying degrees. You know, there is some speculation about the extent to which uh, various cryptocurrencies might be used uh, as, as an alternative. And um, but I think it is it is a concern. And, um, you know, if, if the federal government is worried about. Uh, Colorado being a source of marijuana that is uh, trafficked to Nebraska, um, I would actually argue that is a reason why you want to allow banks to service the marijuana industry in Colorado the way they service other businesses, because that will make it easier for the federal government to uh, ensure that those businesses aren't engaged in the trafficking or facilitating the trafficking of marijuana to jurisdictions where it's not allowed. Um, and so you know, I think that, that there's some serious concerns here. And I think that, that even those that, even those that are skeptical of whether marijuana legalization is a good idea sh should be uncomfortable with what we've done um, uh, with regard to banking services for, for these businesses. 
Let me make just two quick supplemental points. One is, I think you've mentioned a legitimate argument that can be used to support the legalization of recreational marijuana use. I don't think it it deals at all with the medical use, but it is a, a legitimate argument in favor of recreational use legalization. However, I don't think we should be doing this piecemeal. In other words, deal with this little problem here, this little problem there. Congress probably wants to do that because they can, you know, take nibbles each time at this problem so that eventually there's nothing left so that they can say, oh, well, we've now passed so many different laws legalizing uh, all the consequences of recreational use, we might as well just go ahead and legalize recreational use. I think we just need to address that issue. If Congress wants to legalize recreational use, the banking problem goes away. And so, and so do a lot of the other problems that come from the antagonism between federal and state laws. But address that problem head on. Don't be dishonest and, and try to, to deal with this little flaw, that little flaw. Deal with the ultimate issue. And if you want to go ahead and solve the ultimate issue, then go ahead and solve it rather than just taking this piecemeal approach. Let's now go to the next caller. Uh, hi, this is Ilya Selman from George Mason University, uh, Jonathan's co-blogger on the Volk Conspiracy. I want to thank Jonathan for his thoughtful presentation and book and Paul for his comments. I do have a question about sort of the broader implications of Jonathan's argument. It seems to me that most, if not all, of the arguments you make for weaving marijuana issues to the state also apply for weaving uh, issues about the legal status of other drugs currently banned by the federal government also to the state. As you say, there could be diversity of preferences across states. There could be different conditions. Uh, also, uh, banning recreational drugs that many people want creates a black market and strengthens organized crime and so forth, as you have said. And I would add, both marijuana prohibition and virtually every other type of federal prohibition rests on the dubious logic of Gonzalez versus Raich, which, if you take it seriously, would allow the federal government to ban the possession of pretty much anything, even if it wasn't sold in interstate commerce or, indeed, in the case in Raich itself, it wasn't even sold in commerce within a state. So that seems like a gross overreach of federal power that anybody who cares about federalism or the original meaning of the Constitution should be against. So I was wondering, uh, are you willing to some extent or to any or uh, to extend your argument to these other cases? Uh, and if so, how, how far would you go? Thank you. Uh, I, I thank Ilya for, for, for the question. So um, let me say a couple of things. First, um, you know, I, I think Gonzalez versus Raich was wrongly decided. Um, I've published some articles on that um, and, and think it was a mistake. I do think that there was a difficult legal question uh, buried in Gonzalez versus Raich about how you handle um, the fact that you have a broad regulatory scheme that in, in the main is focused on regulating interstate commerce but that on its own terms has applications to activities that are neither interstate nor commerce. And um, there, unfortunately, is not a lot of case law where the Supreme Court uh, has actually thought seriously about the extent to which um, uh, commerce clause limits require carving out unconstitutional applications of the commerce power uh, if they are part of a larger scheme. Um, We have... 
we have a chapter in the book by Will Baud at the University of Chicago who does argue that the fact of, of states regulating the industry um, under state law actually should provide a basis for kind of insulating um, activities that are not otherwise part of interstate commerce from federal regulation and adding its provocative chapter. So as a constitutional matter, uh, I think the Congress's power to regulate the uh, commerce among the states is the power to regulate commerce among the states, and, and commerce is not all activity. It's a particular type of economic activity, uh, and it has to be among the several states. And the Necessary and Proper Clause certainly allows regulation that is necessary to bring that into execution. Uh, and so, for example, to use the, the famous example of Wickard versus Filburn, which everyone loves, if Congress has a national price control statute, which effectively is what was going on with the Agricultural Adjustment Act, controlling supply of a product in interstate commerce uh, might uh, be a necessary and proper way of, of controlling the price. But I don't think that justifies the sort of thing you see with, with drugs here. Um, you know, as a general matter, then I would say, look, if Congress is focused on interstate trafficking and interstate commerce of substances, that is the proper role for the federal government. I happen to believe as a practical matter, if that's what Congress did, if Congress said heroin possession and distribution is only illegal under federal law where it is also illegal under applicable state law. So the federal government's acting as that force multiplier to help states in that circumstance. I think that means that heroin is going to continue to be illegal throughout the United States. And um, uh, so, you know, the reason the book focuses on marijuana is because marijuana is distinct among uh, uh, illegal drugs in that there is such a broad divergence of opinion. Uh, and further, as uh, the chapter uh, by um, uh, John Hudak and, and Christine Steinlein uh, points out, where public opinion has been changing very dramatically and very rapidly uh, over the last couple decades. And so the question of federal and state laws diverging becomes important. For things like heroin, we're not going to have that divergence. If we did have that divergence, and I suspect Paul would disagree with me on this, I'd be happy to allow states to experiment. And I think the policymakers in those states could and should be held responsible by the voters in those states uh, if those experiments turn out to be disasters. Um, but I, I just, you know, that's that's not a, a possibility that I think is, is likely. Um, and so, you know, it's just not you know, it's a hypothetical that, that I don't think is something we have to think much about because I don't know of any jurisdiction in the country um, that uh, wants to engage in those sorts of experiments, whereas a majority of jurisdictions in the United States do want to engage and are trying to engage in experiments uh, with regard to marijuana. Perfect. Let's go to the next question. Thank you, Paul Pazana here. Um, I haven't read the book yet. I apologize if it's addressed in the book. Um, but you know, you, uh, Professor Adler talked about regulate, um, you know, marijuana like alcohol. But I think there's a huge constitutional question mark there because alcohol has a 21st Amendment, has Section Two, uh, where you referenced the uh, Amicus briefs and Gonzalez of Alabama not worrying about California. Uh, but without that Section Two protection, as a, I think we're in the same boat um, uh, there. So has there been any? Uh, why isn't there been a push for maybe a constitutional amendment on this issue? So it would have the uh, apples to apples comparison to marijuana to alcohol, and it would be something where both pros and cons could work on working on uh, 
uh, you know, those that want to stay, quote, dry, like the, uh, back in the prohibition days, uh, and those that want to go wet uh, would have a common cause. So uh, your thoughts on that, uh, both, uh, both, both speakers? Sure. Um, um, thank you. Thank you for the question. I think so. So Section 2 of the, of the 21st Amendment provides that the transportation or importation into any state territory or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. So as a constitutional matter, uh, you if you want to transport or, imp- transport or import um, alcohol into um, a, a state in violation of its laws, that's, that is prohibited by the Constitution. Federal statute actually has a slightly broader prohibition. So the way that is operationalized in, in the U.S. Code is it's not limited to just transportation or importation. So activities that are facilitating that in anticipation of that sort of activity are, are further outlawed. The function of Section 2 of the 21st Amendment is to simply say Congress could not Let's say we had, you know, hypothetical 49 states allow alcohol, one does not. Other 49 states say, you know, this one, that one outlier state, they need to just get over it. Um, the 21st Amendment prohibits Congress from making that choice, right? It prohibits Congress from saying um, that the state can't. Uh, but it doesn't do anything about um, you don't need a Section 2 of the 21st Amendment or its equivalent for Congress as a matter of federal law to create the same dynamic for marijuana. Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. Congress has the, the power to say interstate transportation and activities that are facilitating interstate transportation are legal in some contexts and illegal in others. So so the, the Section 2 of the 21st Amendment actually just cuts the other way, right? It, it, Congress could if it wanted to make marijuana legal uh, nationwide, could, under current doctrine at least, preempt state laws that tried to keep uh, marijuana illegal uh, and could say there is no federal consequence if you take marijuana into a state that is trying to make it illegal. Uh, Congress could do those things. It can't do those things with alcohol because of Section 2 of the 21st Amendment. Either way, I think what Congress should do is adopt the same policy notion that you see in Section 2 of the 21st Amendment. That is to say, it is an exercise of the traditional police power that state governments have to decide what sorts of intoxicating substances are allowed for use and under what circumstances. And what we as Congress are going to do is help ensure that state A doesn't prevent state B from being able to operationalize or implement its preference. And so if Colorado wants to allow people to use marijuana in Colorado, great. But if people in Colorado are pack are preparing for distribution uh, marijuana that's going to be exported to Nebraska, that's we're not going to say to Nebraska, good luck catching them at the border. We, the federal government, are going to uh, help Nebraska by by enforcing against that. I think that's the right policy choice, and I don't think any constitutional amendment is required uh, for for Congress to treat marijuana that way. Uh, let me just add by saying that insofar as you're asking why there hasn't been a move for a constitutional amendment, I think it's just a matter of practical politics. You would need two-thirds of each chamber in the Congress to vote in favor of it. And I think the people who would like to see their results figure they don't have two-thirds of the Senate and two-thirds of the House to vote in favor of it. Whereas if you change it uh, in each state, you can do it by a majority. Plus, if you start out by doing it in states that have these popular initiatives, uh, such as California, 
you don't even put the state legislators to the choice. You just let individuals make the choice. And then ultimately, you can move it to states where they, the legislatures uh, are responsible for making the law. But still, it's only by a majority. So I think people have avoided the constitutional amendment route just because it is far, far more difficult than persuading a majority in each of various different states, whether through ballot initiatives or through the traditional legislative process. Yeah, if I could just jump on that, Paul, Paul raises a very important uh, and, and interesting aspect of this. Public opinion on marijuana uh, has changed more rapidly uh, in a shorter period of time than, than any other policy question that we've seen, with the possible exception of same-sex marriage. That is to say, you don't see swings in, in voter preferences um, uh, in public opinion polls like we've seen with marijuana. And there is a chapter in the book that talks about that. One of the other interesting things that, that the, the research finds, though, is that while there is increasingly, in most of the country, majority support for marijuana legalization, a relatively small percentage of voters actually make this a high priority. Um, you know, there have been efforts to make uh, marijuana decriminalization or legalization a social justice issue or a racial justice issue. Uh, I, you know, we'll see if that if that catches on politically. Um, but the reality is in most states, if you can put it to the voters, a majority of voters think that some degree of marijuana reform is is worthwhile um, uh, and, 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 and do believe in, in moving away from pure prohibition. But if you ask voters, what are your top three most important issues, marijuana reform is, 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 on the, is at the top of the list for, for very few voters. And so what that means is, is that state legislators um, uh, who are generally responsive to voters' top priorities um, don't uh, haven't felt the need to uh, enact reforms through legislation, and we've seen, and most of the reforms have occurred through ballot initiative. Now that appears to be starting to change, and we have seen some states, like my own state of Ohio, where um, legislation was seen as a way of preempting initiative. That is, if, if if the legislature enacted some reforms, then there would be less of a push for an initiative. But it is interesting. This is an issue where there is broad majority support for movement in a particular direction, but the salience or intensity of that support is very weak. And so that affects what sorts of political mechanisms people use. And that means marijuana reform has, has occurred more rapidly in states where you have uh, ballot initiatives than in states that do not. And of course, the federal level, we don't have a ballot initiative. And, and that may explain why Congress has not in, in enactments replicated what we see at the state level, at least has not thus far. I don't have anything to add. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our speakers for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at bedsock.org. Thank you all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.